We are in Acts chapter 6. We are talking, if you're joining with us this morning, we're talking and continuing on and get this done in a couple weeks now. Um, the church, what it is, how we operate, what we work together. And we've been trying to be practical and today give you some information, but then we're going to go into a more philosophical sense that I hope makes sense in how we make decisions. And uh, so what we're talking about, if you're joining with us, is a church. The church being the organized body of a born-again believers who are baptized, who are doing God's business. And our primary goal that we've talked about for weeks, and keep on saying it because it is so critical, and it'll be our first uh, step in making decisions, is bringing glory to God. Bringing glory to God. Multiple verses that talk about it. How churches operate in the New Testament, they did have organization, and so those who say, I mean, I've been told this before, you should never go to pulpit with notes. You should just freelance. You should freelance whatever happens in a church service. That's not true biblically. In the scriptures where God is talking, in 1 Corinthians chapter, 12, uh, chapter uh, 11 as well, 12, 13, 14, he makes it very clear that even within the church service, there should be things done decently and in order, that there is an organization to it, because God is not the author of confusion. And even in church government, which is part of the organization, and we have as well the type of membership, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that is implied, though not specifically stated, but clearly implied for multiple different reasons. We talked about the idea of government, that there is some type of of procedure, some type of a way that we do things. We are under the understanding the scriptures teach independent, autonomous, pastor-led, congregational rule type church. That is, the congregation has the final say as far as the human entity, and, uh, and with that we are totally independent. We handle our own business. With that government, we have the establishment of officers. There are two of them mentioned in scriptures that are clearly stated that churches are to have. They are pastors and deacons. Last week we talked about pastors. Let's pick on the deacons this morning. They are mentioned in three different passages in the scriptures. Acts chapter 6, starting with verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmurings of the Greeks against the Jews, or Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, with wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The saying, please the multitude, it gives all those big names of who they picked, whom they set before the apostles when they prayed that they'd hands on them and the word of God increased the number of the disciples multiplied. Why? Because they were addressing a need which helped people keep their priorities. Now, if you flip over to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is a secondary text that's talking about the deacons, and it gives some of their qualifications. The only other text where they're mentioned, as you're going to 1 Timothy 3, is where he makes this comment, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, this is Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3, He's given qualifications for officers. If we jump down into the text, we pick up in verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith and a pure conscience. Let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For for they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Those three texts. 
putting them together, here's what we can make some conclusions about deacons. We know, first of all, that when we talk about deacons, they're an important entity to the church. They are seen in association with the preacher-teacher aspect where they're listed for qualifications. They're uh, helpful in helping to address some of the major issues that come up in a church and ministering on a one-to-one level like in Acts 6. We know that they were to be spiritual men spiritual character, um, individuals who are filled with wisdom. That, that goes contrary to what often happens in a lot of churches. A lot of churches pick deacons based upon, is this a businessman? Does this person have financial acumen? That's because deacons handle a lot of the finances. But we almost have a mistake that says, okay, if the person has been successful in building a business, then therefore they should be a deacon in a church. It never mentions that as a qualification. It doesn't talk about their job skills outside the church or their those types of things. It talks about their personal character. It talks about their reputation. It talks about them having a servant's mentality. We uh, want to point out that it also, it doesn't do this with pastors, but it does it with deacons. It says their wives have to be ladies who have a good reputation. Not devil tongue. That's the idea of slanderers. The idea that they're gossips. Not, a, and it goes on we've already read in 1 Timothy 3 some of those qualifications. We know this as well, that the word deacon literally comes from diakonite which the word meant table waiters. It meant to literally, the two words that went together was to stir up the dust. Somebody who was quick to serve the individuals like you expect your waiters at a, at a restaurant. That they would do and get and take care of your needs. And so the idea of deacons is, like, it, like with ministers the vocational ministers, they're to minister. They're to be serving others. Uh, they were first arrived because there was a need of them helping to relieve some of the burden of individual one-on-one ministry with the peoples and the needs of the church. In fact, let me, let me throw this out. Um, does a church that has problems, can it still be a good church? Yeah, Acts chapter 6. It's a growing church, but they had problems. And it doesn't mean that they were a bad church, that some people felt neglected. Now, that's not our goal, but that does happen in, in most any good ministries that somewhere, someplace, there's going to be problems. And the reason is because we're people. Okay, so we, we bring difficulties. And so to help address some of the problems, they said, let's appoint these seven men of honest report. And they got the deacons. They assisted as teammates. I, I'm firmly convinced of this in Scripture, that the deacons are teammates with the pastors, that they are not adver- to work adversarially. They're not to work contrary to one another. They're not to be working in, in two, pulling in two different ways. They're to work as teammates in ministering to the congregation of the, uh, the, to the needs of the members. There were incidents in scripture where you read about Stephen in Acts chapter 8, who was one of the deacons mentioned, that he also went out and he spoke. He went out preaching. He went out sharing the word. And so deacons aren't limited to, okay, the only thing they do is they, let's, let's use this phrase tongue-in-cheek, the mundane, the material, the physical aspects. Now, they, they got involved with those other ministries as well, which, uh, which doesn't limit them, but when they were helping in ministries, they did focus, according to Acts 6, on meeting that physical needs of a lot of the members, especially the widows. They were chosen by the congregation, and then the preachers, they said, you appoint them, you select, and then we will assign them the specific duties. And so they worked in harmony that they were chosen by the congregation, and they weren't chosen by the preachers. The congregation did that, which has its benefits. Every time they're mentioned in the New Testament, they're mentioned in a plural sense. 
every single time, which gives the impression that there may be in many churches, depending upon the size, there may be one pastor, but there's probably multiple deacons to assist and to help in that regard. And that seems to be the biblical pattern. Um, But as churches grow, then they could have as well multiple different elders within the church. Something else that strikes me is that in modern day, the choices that we have. In modern day and in our culture, there's... there's, um, I'm not so sure that every time we view deacons or every book that we pick up and they talk about it, if they're correct. Here are some of the positives, here are some of the negatives that happen in modern day culture with deacons. That people wrongly assign deacons to serve as watchdogs of or provide a checks and balance to the, to the pastors in the church. And as I've already alluded to this multiple times, I don't believe Scriptures gives any indication that deacons are appointed to keep an eye on the pastor to make sure that the pastor does his job. I don't think there's any scriptural foundation for that. I don't think there's any scriptural foundation that the deacons are to keep the pastor in check. They're to be working together, serving the body. Now, if somebody needs to be kept in check... That I'm not sure if that's the, that's the deacon's duty or the whole body's duty that if the guy can't be trusted, he shouldn't even be in ministry. Okay, and so there's a bigger issue there. But they're not appointed. Um, and I wonder sometimes if, if some of this comes from our American political situation. That there's the two-party system that tries to keep each other in check. And as well, even that two-party system I think has affected churches. or our governmental system, that sometimes we think deacons are our representatives, like in our government setting, that the deacons, therefore, that they are going to represent me, and okay, we got a deacon of the young people, we got a deacon of the elderly, we got a deacon of... We don't have that in Scripture. There's no inclination that deacons represent a certain group or that deacons are to be representative uh, fixtures in the church. I know that their input and their helpful and their counsel is phenomenal, but I think that's a mistake that happens in a lot of churches and that people think that the deacons represent us and I can go to them if I have a conflict with somebody else in the church and I can unload on them and then they're the ones that are supposed to take care of it. No, if you have a conflict with somebody in the church, who is, who's, who's supposed to take care of that? You are, not, not an elected representative per se. Um, they are, in our modern culture, I think that this is a mistake, that the deacons are told that they make all the decisions for the church. All the goals, the philosophy, the doctrine, the employment, the purchases. That's not what God intended for the deacons to do, that they all of a sudden become the sole... Um, decision-making force within the church body. That is not scriptural. Who makes the final decisions for the congregation? The congregation, okay? Deacons are to help, help us to be able to minister to you. They're not to be this powerhouse within the church that they make all the decisions. And I don't think it'd be right for us to give up that authority to the deacons, that the deacons set the doctrinal tone, that the deacons do all the employment, and you, we as a body, have no say in that. Okay, I, I think that would be wrong if they were all of a sudden the deacons were given the authority that they hire the clergy, the pastors for the church. They decide if we build a building. They decide whatever's in the budget. Um, that would be, though it, it seems that a lot of churches are going that way, I think that's American political system that's, that's shifted what God intended for the deacons to do. As well, I think that here's something else. 
I think that this is a mistake that many have in a church, that the deacons are those who will do all the work in the church. No, no, no. They're to help minister, but they need help as well. They're to help to facilitate, like we help facilitate, but who's supposed to be ministering one to another? The whole body. The whole body is to be contributing. It's not, oh, we voted them that they do my, my share of the work. That they're the ones that do, do everything. That they are the only ones to visit the widows. That was the specific tax in Acts 6. And so the deacons, we have deacons, therefore they do all the visits on the widows. But James chapter 1 says, pure and undefiled religion for all of us is to visit the widows. They aren't all of a sudden, we can't shift and say they do all the work. It's like the same thing would be wrong for us. We hire a pastor who's going to be in charge of calling and outreach. Oh, okay, then he will do all of our outreach for us. And if nobody gets saved, it's his fault. We don't have any responsibility. No, no. Who's supposed to be bearing sheep? The sheep, right? All of us. Who's supposed to be sharing the gospel? All of us. Okay, and so in the same way, if we say, well, the deacons will do all the work. They will do all the visiting. They will take care of all those mundane things. That's wrong on our part. Okay, that would be a unnecessary shift. Uh, I think this is a proper move that rightly enlists the, the assistance of other officers. And I don't know what other term you want to use for them. But other officers to help carry out the duties. I think this is cultural. In a cultural sense, we do a whole lot of things different than what would happen back in the early New Testament. In the early New Testament, I'm not so sure that they had to get bank auditing statements. Maybe they did, but we don't know of that. They didn't have the buildings like we have buildings. They met in homes. And they were able to meet in homes. Why can't we continue to meet in homes? It's zoning. We can't have a church, an official church in a home. By the way, this has happened in, a, in central Pennsylvania quite a bit. People will all of a sudden say, well, I'm going, to start, I'm going to have my home and we're going to have this church meet here and I get a benefit out of that because if the church meets in my home, then I am becoming a church building and therefore I am tax-free. Okay, and so that's been tried quite a few times here in central PA. But, um, and, and yes, can we start a church in the Bible study and let it grow? But once you become an official uh, a church entity, by law, and that's not an intrusion by the state, to say, hey, if you're having public, public meetings that exceed a certain amount, you, you need to be in a public building that has been built for that and is zoned for that. Why is the government doing that? To infringe on our worship? What, why do they do that? It's a safety issue. It's a safety. I'll, I'll use the dumb illustration I've used before. We had a friend came through. He wanted to speak in our church years ago. He wanted to decry how the government of North or South Dakota, I forget which, that they were intruding in his religious freedom, and he came through, wanted to speak here on a Wednesday night, raise funds for his lawyer's fees, because he and his church met in his garage, and then they would have a school in that garage. The garage was not, not a finished garage. In the garage were oil cans, gas cans. There was other regular garage equipment, but what they would do is they would set up TV trays and do their school. And then they had in the middle of the middle of the room they had a kerosene heater that was the heat. This is in Dakota, 
okay, for the wintertime. And so he met that way, and he declared that he was a church, his building, and so as a church, as freedom of religion, the government had no right to come in and tell him that he even had to put up a fire extinguisher. That's what started it all is they had no right to say you could even put a fire extinguisher there. And he called it an infringement on his worship. And he was taking it all through the courts and trying to, and his hope was to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get freedom of religion. Well, is, that the, is, is the government infringing on his worship by telling him that if you have kids in your facility for school, you need to have them in a safe environment? Okay. Is that an infringement on rights? No, that's, that's just plain common sense, okay? Because he didn't have any. Um, and obviously, we didn't let him speak because we have a totally different view of that that says, you know, government has a right to protect its citizens. Government has a right to establish codes. Is it exciting to know the codes when we do a building? No. But the codes are supposed to be for our... Okay, protection. Okay, and so, um, and so in that regards, that with government and modern way it is, there's certain things that happen. When you incorporate, you have to have trustees. When you do banks and different things like that, that idea of, okay, what we do is we use not just the deacons, but we elect treasurer and assistant treasurer. So as this way, we provide multiple different peoples whose paths do not cross at times. Uh, what I mean by that is this, the same people who do the counting necessarily aren't the ones who write all the checks okay and so we try to keep it so that there is protection of everyone we, we do simple things like this the simple things like and guys help me out here if I'm saying it wrong that when the bill when the money leaves this room there's multiple people walking with that money okay the reason we do that is not that we don't trust these two Okay, if we all of a sudden, because look at them, they're shady looking, right? Okay. We don't say, okay, those two walking out with the money, we don't trust them. That's not the issue. What are we trying to do? We're trying to protect them from any false accusation. And so we give multiple eyes. And so that's the, we do that with our banking accounts. The, the banking accounts are such that absolutely none of the pastors can sign any check. Okay. We can't sign it. Okay? We don't sign it. Um, that's not our authority. We have, a, we have a system here that if there's purchases made, there's POs, they have to be signed by the deacons. And it's all done not because we don't trust staff. You know, quite frankly, if we didn't trust staff, we wouldn't give them a credit card. Okay? But the idea is, okay, we have all these in place. And that is not because the people are incompetent, but we're just tr tr providing checks and balances. Now, here's where I think the difference is. Now, this is personal opinion. I think the difference is, it is it's okay to have these extra additional eyes and helps and assistance as long as I or the deacons don't abdicate our responsibilities totally and leave it up to these others because we don't want to do them. Does that make sense? Okay. Deacons are more than welcome to say, let's, let's incorporate, let's use treasures, let's use them. 
So, so, but, but they don't abdicate their role of, okay, let's make sure we're managing, we're monitoring, we're watching that budget, like the reports that we give out to you on a quarterly basis that we post every month, that the deacons go over that. They, ma- they keep an eye on that because that's part of their fiscal responsibility, and yet they aren't the ones that might not necessarily write out every single check. They can, some of them can sign them. Uh, they're not the ones that may do good correspondence with some of our vendors, but they're managing, okay? But for the bookkeeping sakes, you know, we may have others that do those. We do have others that help with those things. Other related questions that come up with deacons are, let me just answer several of these. Just This is practical, okay? This is beyond what the Bible says about deacons in some of these cases, okay? Who can be a deacon in our church? What we do is we go back to Scripture and say they have to be spiritually mature individuals. They have to have a good reputation. Even their family has to have a good reputation based upon that, that passage you already read. They're not appointed or chosen by the pastor, Okay, we have in our constitution, in our government, I do not choose deacons. Okay, neither does any of the other staff. They are voted upon, chosen by you. Okay, we don't, we, in fact, I don't even vote. Uh, in any of our church business meetings, I don't vote. Um, and that's because as moderator, I never vote unless there is a tie. Okay, uh, so uh, in that regard, the congregation do, does it. We also have added this. We've added in our constitution, we want people who are deacons, they need to be a member at least six months. We think that is a very practical thing, that they need to know the church at least, and they should be over 21 years of age. That's because in our constitution, not only are the deacons serving as deacons, but they are our legal trustees. And so that's, we have those two additions as well. The, um, how does somebody get to be a deacon? This first one will sound funny, but it's for a reason. You don't campaign for it. Okay. The reason I say that is because we've had this happen. We've had individuals who have come to me and they said, I want to be a deacon. Is it okay if I put my name up? You know, in the sense of, can I put a poster up that says, I am available to serve as a deacon? And my question was, after I was kind of stumbled, you know, befuddled, was, you mean like a campaign poster? And they said, yes, because I think I want to be a deacon in the church. We don't campaign for it, okay? Uh, that's not the way it works. What it is is we have a committee that, that um, reviews and, and communicates with them. It's a nominating committee. It's comprised of the deacons plus others. Um, and what they do is they get together on an annual basis and they will consider any nomination made by the congregation, which every year we open it up for you to be able to give written nominations, and they will consider them. Now, when we ask him publish and save, you have nominations, fill out the paper and, and send it in, give it in, and we give you about usually about a three-week period to do that uh, for consideration. Not everybody who gets written in do they end up on the ballot? There's a couple reasons for that. Well, we usually get, in the last few years, we might have 40 names of individuals that have been nominated, suggested, or the committee has said, okay, we would like to suggest and nominate these people. And then they go to those individuals, and they might approach Kevin, and they say, Kevin, would you be willing to have your name put on the ballot? And so we, you know, I, I forget the exact numbers that we had this year. It was, it was up to 40 or 40-something. 40 and a number of them, obviously, when we came to the elections, we only had four or five on the ballot, something like that this year. And that's because the majority of those individuals said, not this year. This isn't the timing, their family, their circumstances, and they would prefer not to have their name on the ballot. There is another reason that sometimes we get nominations that people will submit, 
and they'll say, I nominate so-and-so to be considered for a deacon. And sometimes we don't do that. We don't, we don't even approach the person and say, okay, and I'll give you an example, and it's not real far-fetched. If Alice's name is written down by somebody in the congregation to be nominated for a deacon, when the nominating committee gets together, they don't put and say, we'll ask Alice if she's willing. Okay? Because a deacon, by virtue of the name, it is a man's position. Deaconess is the female position. Okay? And so we just, there are times that that happens. There are times that uh, what happens is um, we've had non members, names been suggested that they would become deacons. We've had people who have left the church two, three years uh, beforehand, and their names have been suggested that they become a deacon. So sometimes the suggestions come in, and it's like, okay, um, you know, we're not even going to consider them. But the majority of those that come in, we would sit and we would say, okay, let's, you know. And then what happens is the group typically works uh, on, a, on, a, on a unanimous situation. Though many of you have been serving in that committee at times. We don't want to sit and we don't want to talk about individuals. We don't want to discuss and get into those things. So what we, t- what we basically do is we just do a voting and it's a secret voting that we would do. And we pretty much everybody, almost all the time, uh, it's unanimous as far as a sense of, okay, who's going to be approached? Um, but we do, have the, we do have it set up that if there was some concern, if there is something that somebody might know that's happening, like, you know, Wayne Burgraff's name has been nominated, but you know personally, and you're the only one who knows, that he and Deb are having some really, really bad feuds in the house, and she usually wins the arguments, and, you know, they get into fisticuffs. Okay, at the in the house, and nobody knows that but you. Okay, by the way, that person's disqualified from being an officer. Okay, they're they're disqualified, and um, and you say, well, how do I do this? And so we have a way that when we do the balloting, that if there is a certain number or if there's any negatives, then the person's put on hold, and then we need to discuss. Okay, uh, let me throw this out. I, I do sit on the committee. I have never and will never make a nomination. And the men can attest to that who have served in that committee. Uh, I don't think it's my role to make nominations. I think they should come from the congregation or that committee. Um, Though I do reserve the right to be one of those who might say I have some reservations because there's a possibility I might know something more personal than most of the people on that committee. And so that's the way we operate, and it has operated fantabulous uh, over the years. Uh, The body at large, we said you can suggest names, but then we do the election at the annual business meeting. So that's how we do our deacons. Others may do it differently, but that's the way we do it by ballot. How long should someone serve as a deacon? Now, some churches have them for life. That if you're a deacon, you're a deacon forever and ever. Some have it that you're a deacon for only one year. Um, there are some practical reasons. Are there some benefits not to have the same officers for life? What would any of the benefits be? What's that? that they would get burned out. They could easily be burned out. If they're, if they're doing a really good job as a deacon, they're working hard. Okay. Any other reasons? What would you say? Sure, sure. They could have different, different events going on in their own life. That this might not be, you know, there, that there's situations where, uh, does it ever happen that somebody may have to stop a lot of their activities and focus on helping their mate through an illness? Sure. sure. 
Okay. Could there be, and I'll give you the negative, could there be that people who are for life, could they become a power force that's unwieldy in the church? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a biblical example. Diotrephes. Diotrephes is talked about in John's epistles, and he is an individual who somehow was a leader in the church, but he took the leadership in the church where he was dictating to the church. And he was dominating the church and leading them in a place they shouldn't go. So what we've done is we've chosen, okay? There is no biblical statement for this. There is no uh, term of, of tenure given in Scripture. So we did a number of years ago, we thought a good rotation initially was um, three years, okay? That we would rotate every three years. And then we added on top of that our Constitution. And by the way, since... The last time we did our constitution, we dropped it from three years to two years, okay, just for the burnout factor. And um, so then what we also have is we have a two-year term limit. At the end of the two years, can they be renominated for another two years? Yeah, they can't. They can't immediately succeed themselves. We have it set up that somebody can serve two years, but then they have to be, there has to be a break, Okay. And that's for multiple different, for their help, for their considerations, for the idea of, okay, uh, not any one person or two people, just be ad infinitum. And so we have it two years, a year off, and there is some discrepancy if they fill in part of a year for somebody who couldn't do the uh, entire office for the two years. But that, that's, mon- that's rare. But we have two years, then they have to have a year off, then they could be elected for two years. Okay, we do that same thing with, with all the other offices. We have term limits just for the sake of just getting more people involved as well as not letting burnout and uh, as well not letting any one individual. I'll, I'll give you the one office that seems in churches that you've got to be careful of is the one office that some people can really, really, it can become a problem is the treasurer's office. Now, you may have served your entire life as a treasurer. God bless those who do a great job. Um, I get called by, by younger men in ministries, and many times, many times, it's an issue with the treasurer who has been succeeding themselves year after year after year after year. And all of a sudden, by doing that, okay, sometimes treasurers get in their mind, they are in total charge of the money. Okay, and again, that's, that's not happened in, any, in every church. I'm saying that the few that I get called and say, can you assist us, that seems to be a predominant problem where the treasurer has decided he doesn't like, and I, I can give you several instances where this happened, where the treasurer didn't like something in the ministry and he stopped, he didn't care for a missionary. He stopped writing checks to that missionary. Okay, that missionary isn't getting paid and nobody else in the church can sign a check. So everything is just kind of, the, the, um, I know of a couple cases where they didn't like the pastor, something he preached, so they stopped paying him. Well, that's one way to get rid of the preacher, okay? And so they stopped paying him or something a part of it. And again, some of you who have had that privilege and opportunity, that's totally not you, but I'm saying there are those cases. And so um, we have decided that we will rotate treasurers, but we don't do it on an annual basis, because if you do that annually, what can happen with changes every year, it can become too disruptive. 
And so we have every we have where the there's two assistant treasurer and treasurer, and you become an assistant treasurer, and then you move up to the treasurer, and then you're off at least a year, and the assistant moves up. So there's some type of continuity in simple things like counting the money. You know, there's a lot of work doing in counting the monies. Okay. And that doesn't mean you should stop giving the money so that it's not as much work. I don't mean it that way. But just doing it in a way that is really done right. I mean, the guys spend a lot of time, and they have a system where they, they count all the offerings, and they want to make sure that, they, that you get credited for it. We want to make sure that it gets deposited right. We want to make sure that somebody at the bank doesn't. And we've had this happen once or twice, once for sure, over the years, where somebody at the bank was taking money out of our collections and putting it in their pocket. And we caught on because the guys fill out these papers that show how many of the different bills come in, you know, the, the cash bills. And so there's a lot of work that they do in that regard. But uh, we do that, we do a lot of that just because of helping. We have term limits that they serve, um, as I've already mentioned this, okay? Um, let me give you this one. What about female deacons, okay? There are deaconesses mentioned in Scripture. It's in Romans chapter 16, I believe, verses 1 or 2, it talks about Phoebe and that she's a deaconess in the church. Um, so let's deal with the deacon, the male aspect. The male is seven males of Honest Report in Acts 6, the husband of one wife, uh, their wives. And so deacons are a male office in that sense, that, that yet there are the female factor of deaconesses, somebody helping and assisting uh, some ministries. And what we do here is we have the, pa- the deacon's wives become deaconesses, plus about as many, again, are asked on an annual basis to help serve as deaconesses, because the ladies can do some of those serving ministries so much better than the men. Okay, no, no busting on us men, but I am so glad that the ladies take charge of the nursery. And those with babies, you should say amen. Okay. I am so glad that the ladies take care of helping to organize stuff when it comes to meals, when it comes to getting people to cook the meals, to take out, to do the ministries at times that are very, very beneficial and helpful that they are just so much wiser and better at dealing with. And so we have things divided down. And again, it's not because the deacons are shirking responsibility, but using the skill sets of others like their wives, etc. Et cetera, et cetera, that help out. Um, when I say baptisms, we have girls, we have ladies who get baptized. Therefore, a deaconess goes back there to help them with the garb and things because that's just so appropriate that a lady would be there to just uh, make sure that their needs are met rather than one of the men. And so we have female deaconesses. Here's a question that comes up. Do they have to be married? And it's based upon 1 Timothy chapter 3, the husbands of one wife. Their wives also must be blameless, not given to gossip. And so based on that, there is a conclusion that some say they must be married and therefore it's wrong to have single people, uh, single men serve as deacons. And there's two ways of looking at the text. When it talks about the husband, is it mandating that they're married or is it dealing if they are married, their wives must be? Okay, does that make sense? Okay, one of two. Okay, Uh, my approach as I do the scripture, are you in 1 Timothy 3? I'll show you why I I don't think it's mandating. I don't think where it says in verse 11, even so must their wives be grave, not slanders. I don't think that verse says they have to be married. Okay? For the same reason that in uh, in the next verse, let the husband let the deacons be the husband of one wife ruling their what? 
Okay, if it mandates that they must be married, then it's mandating they must have children plural. Okay? And so I think he's, what he's doing in the text is he is saying, if they are married, if they have kids, type of a, a situation. The reason I can come to that conclusion is, if it is mandating, then some of the very people that were in scriptures that we know, like the Apostle Paul, they're disqualified for ministries. Okay, because he was single at the time that he's doing ministry. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And so I think it's not a mandate of being married and having multiple kids, but if that that's be the case, then look at the family. Um, next question. Oh, we're not into we're into decision making. This will work out well. Timing's going good. Great. Okay, we have certain jobs we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be preaching, giving, singing, doing offerings, helping the needy. Those are very clear. Those are stated in the Bible. But now as a church, what happens in some areas where their things aren't stated in the Bible? Now, I, I had discussions at, at length with some folk who had been, a, uh, been in our church for a while who said, okay, where we should be is we should only do ministries and do things in our lives that are specifically stated in the Bible. If it's not stated in the Bible, we shouldn't be doing it or getting involved with it. Okay. If you think that, should we therefore dress like they did in the Bible? And the answer was yes. Okay, with the response to me. Okay, then you're in the wrong group. Okay, do you have a car? Well, yeah, yeah, but if I had my choice, I wouldn't have a car. Okay, well, do you turn on the heat in the wintertime with a thermostat? Okay. Where do you go when you say, okay, we, we can only do what's specifically mentioned in the Bible? Okay, if it's not mentioned in the Bible, we shouldn't do it in our private life and in our personal life. Okay, and so there's, you can get into a lot of discussions on this. I mean, you have groups in Central PA that kind of lean that direction, right? Okay, do anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, you got like the Amish, and yet even them, do they, do they modernize? Sure, okay. And so, where do we go with it? Okay, for instance, if, if we said, okay, I'm only going to use the instruments that are mentioned in the Bible. Well, you could have a trumpet, you can have a harp, you can have a small drum, you can have a lute, a tambourine, strings and cymbals, but you can't have a piano. Pianos aren't mentioned in Scripture. Do you know why they were not mentioned? They were forbidden? They weren't around. Okay, they weren't around. Okay, that, that's the reason. Here, let me, th um, let me throw this one out. Uh, and this was a discussion in church history. Church history was this. What type of Bibles should we use? Should we use bi bounded Bibles or use what Scripture had? Scrolls that you have to unroll. Okay, um, they even went to this point. There was, there was a time in history, in American history, that preachers were not supposed to use English translations when they went to the pulpit. They were required to use the Greek or the Hebrew and work from the Greek or Hebrew. And they were not supposed to have notes. They were supposed to have things memorized and work from the Hebrew and the Greek Bibles only. Okay, because those were what was there. They didn't have English translations. Therefore, you shouldn't use an English translation in the pulpit. You should use the original language. Um, there was a time that these two instruments were forbidden in churches. 
Okay, they were absolutely forbidden because they were used in dance halls or theaters. And so they were, they were taboo instruments. I don't think anybody in a modern America says, ooh, organ is... You know, because when we talk about organ, it's usually associated with churches now. Now it is, but it wasn't back in the day. Uh, electronic devices. Any of you use, do any of you use electronic devices as your Bible for services? Any of you do that? Okay. You know that they didn't have those in Bible days. Okay. So, in fact, let's be honest about it. If we're only going to use what they had in Bible days, they didn't have complete Bibles for a while. Okay, so you can, you can get yourself in all kinds of troubles if, by making that statement. The, um, you know, what about meeting for services? Did, and people say this all the time. They'll say, well, you have to show me in the Bible where they met Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Oh, oh do you want to meet the way they met in the scriptures? Do you want me to preach as long as they preached in scriptures? Right? Right? You'd be falling out of the balcony instead of the window. Okay. Okay. There's, so when we go and say, well, if it's not in the Bible, we shouldn't do it, that can be a dangerous statement. Or if it's in the Bible, we should do it just like they did because have, have things changed? They do. They just, they just change. Okay. Um, should we dress just like they did in the Bible? So we come up and people start, we start asking these questions. Okay, should we have these things? These are not specifically stated in the Bible. Are they right or are they wrong to do? Okay, is that something we should do? Is it something we shouldn't do? And if it's, if it's not stated in Scripture, but it's suggested, how do we deal with some of these things? And by the way, there's, I'm putting up things we do. I'm putting up things that we've been asked to do. It's a wide variety of different types of things. And you won't find a bus ministry stated in the Bible. Does that make it wrong? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Does it mean, therefore, because another church does it, we should do it? Not necessarily. By the way, what are some of the considerations if you do a bus ministry that, that should be considerations? Insurances. What would you say? Qualified drivers. The demographic. Oh, man, there is so much. Now, let's go back. Let's go back about 40 years ago. Bus ministries were the heyday of ministries. If you were in, in, if you were in church at that point. They were, every church needed a bus ministry. Okay, what has changed in 40 years? What's? Okay, okay, the, the vehicles have changed. I, I don't mean to be so mundane, but has gas prices changed? The expenses of it? Has the culture changed about kids and where they are and who's with the kids? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Remember, remember 40 years ago, if you were parenting or you were a kid at that point, you rode your bike everywhere. Okay, it was a much more open, safe society. Today, is it, is it different for parents? Yeah, okay, it's a, di- it's a different culture um, that things have, have progressed. I mean, why is it years ago they didn't put services on the Internet? Okay, I mean, if it wasn't for Al Gore, we wouldn't have it, right? Okay. And so things change. Um, um, I, I, we, we, we went through this when we were doing a building. We went through conversations like this. Conversations that went, you know what, years ago when I was growing up, we didn't have air conditioning in the church. And we could save a lot of money, and we, and we did this. 
we built a building. The first building was the, uh, our worship center was the family center. And because of the expense of building the building, we said we have to cut something, so we cut the air conditioning. Okay, the family center has six windows. Do you know what I'm talking about? You don't open those windows. You only open the bottom. Look at them when you go for lunch day. It's only about this big. And we said, that'll get a draft in the building. We don't need air conditioning. Okay, we moved in, was it April or May we moved in? Before the summer was ended, we purchased air conditioners. Okay. We just said, because... Okay. We didn't do it because of the expense, but why did we do it then? Our culture is such that here in central Pennsylvania, do most people, wherever they go, are they used to air conditioning? Yes or no? Okay. Okay. And so we just said, we're not going to keep on reaching. People will come in and they will go, <gasps> okay, but you and I would be okay with it. Well, not some of you wouldn't be, but okay. We were going to sacrifice and do it, but we were already here. It goes like this, okay? I'm, I'm, is, is something so simple in our culture, space? And I'm talking the final frontier, okay? I'm, not, I'm talking space, okay? When we, talked about, we, we, when, we, when we talked about building, we had a major discussion in one of the, in one of the church business meetings. And it was, it was the discussion came up and said this, uh, we don't need to build, we can just squeeze closer together. Okay. Really? Okay. Alice doesn't mind if I if I squeeze close because we are dear, 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 dear friends. We don't shake hands. We always hug, and we're we're Alice is our Pennsylvania grandma for our kids. But Alice, if I were a total stranger, and this is all the room, would you be comfortable? If you go in a restaurant, if you go into a restaurant, right, and you are, you know, some of you love these things. Some of you say, oh, I just love restaurants where you get to meet new people. Okay. I don't. Okay. <laughs> I don't go into restaurants where the chairs are like, whoever's going to do this later, fix it. Good for you. Okay. Where here's how close the tables are. And Deb and I are on a hot date. And Joe Schmo is listening in and said, Oh, yeah. you guys talk like that too? Okay. I want when I go to a restaurant. Am I the only one? Okay. So in that sense, God bless whoever's putting that all back. Um, in that sense, do we, and when we, when we make decisions, do we have to be practical at times? We have to be practical, okay? Does it cost us sometimes? Okay, it would be cheaper if we didn't have lights in here. Let's just turn off the lights. Things change. People, when they come in, they want some light. And, and by the way, what is, what is the reason why we need it so bright in here compared to some churches? What do we do different than other churches? Not, not faith Baptists only, but what do churches like ours do different that require better lighting? We read Bibles, okay? You have Bibles in your hands, and you take notes. If you go into a liturgical church where you just sit, you want it darker. 
Why? You don't need to see, and you can snoop better. Okay, snooze a little bit better. Okay. Um, why are pews changing? Years ago, pews were straight-backed. Okay. Okay, there was a reason why pews were straight-backed. You, and still go to churches, a lot of them are like this. Usually those with straight back, what do they also have on the floor? They have kneelers, okay, because you're not sitting the whole time. So you don't need a pew that is, <laughs> I'm going to say this, you're going to go, what? As comfortable as your pew. <laughs> this is an upgrade from where we used to be. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I know that some of you would rather have a recliner that had the button and it had a mute. Okay, so you go, okay. But when we, when we do things, we have, to, we have to at times be real practical. And ministry, we have to be living within our culture. Okay, and so what I want to talk about next week, and I, there's no sense in, in developing further right now, but what I want to talk about is how do we make these decisions? Where do we go when we talk about a ministry? Where do we go when we talk about what are we doing purchase-wise? Where did we go? This, this thing. Where, you know, why did we build this the way we did? There was one major factor into it. We didn't hear a voice from God saying, build it that way. Okay? 90 feet by 90 feet by 90 feet. Okay? We didn't hear that. But what dictated some of the things we did here? Cost? Okay, what's that? Property size, okay? All these, we, we took into account culture. What would be attractive and appealing to visitors? Okay, that could draw them in and not wow the socks, that wasn't the idea, but be clean, nice, and pleasant. All those, those are factors that play into this. Okay, that sometimes... You know, they're good. Sometimes we don't like them, but there's a, we, we'll start next week with making these decisions. We start with the scriptures, and then we go from there. And we'll give you a formula that we use. Thanks.